All right, well, we are jumping into um, a new series this morning. I want to give you a little bit of a taste for about five minutes here about where we're heading over the course of this series. And, and then we'll start on this morning's particular message. Um, so I kind, of, I kind of wrestled with the title of this thing for a while. Alex and I, man, I probably mentioned this to you last fall at, when I first was kind of wrestling with knowing this was something I wanted to, to talk about in the future. And then maybe five or six weeks ago, we were talking about a title for the series and thought about light and dark and some different things like that. But we're going to call this Love and Hate. Love and Hate is the name of this series. And here's where we're heading over the course of this. Um, the idea behind this is to let God teach us what love is and what we do with love. How, how does love operate in our lives, in our relationship with him and with each other as a body of believers and in our families? And then also in our community and in our culture, God, how do we love well? And also letting God define for us what hate is and what are the things that God hates. And, and the reality is part of aligning my life with Jesus and enjoying the life God's inviting me into is letting God define what a healthy life looks like. When we come to Jesus and we enter an eternal relationship with him, he invites us into something that starts right then. His desire for us is to experience an abundant life. And God uses really extravagant words to describe that life. He throws out words like freedom and joy and peace. He throws out words like love and kindness and gentleness. These are all things that are a part of his life. And yet if we're honest and we look at our home lives, we look at our church communities, we look at our culture, I think we could all agree there's, there's a pretty big lack of those things in our lives. There can be a huge lack. And so to experience what God has for us, more and more, we've got to learn to let him define what that life looks like. And so our, our goal is to lean into him and say, God, how do you define love? And how does that operate in our lives? God, what are the things that, that you hate? What are the things that you have a problem with? And how do we understand that from your perspective? And I can tell you up front, I'll just let you know right now, chances are you're going to get offended at some point over the next six to eight weeks. Now, it might be because I blow it and say something incorrect. That's possible. If I knew what that thing would be, I would avoid it. Um, but I don't know. I'll probably mess up along the way. But my hope is that we hang really close to the truth of God's word and what he has to say and that we're open to the fact that if we get offended, maybe it's because that's a place in our lives we haven't yielded over to the Lord yet. I've allowed my own way of thinking, my own, my own view on life. I've allowed the culture that I've lived in to define for me how to think about something instead of letting God define it for me. And so what I want to encourage you to do is be open to the possibility that maybe I'm wrong about something I talk about, but also to the possibility that maybe there's something that God wants to invite us into that will challenge us a little bit. My desire when we reach the end of this is that we would have a healthy understanding of how to live and love well in a culture that is lost and in need of Jesus. The reality is the world around us needs to see the life that God has to offer on full display. And that is gonna come from freedom from sin and the slavery and consequences of sin 
and experiencing real, healthy love from a God who loves us and from people who are learning how to do that a little bit more every day. That's, that's my, my hope for us. We're going to talk about some big, some big topics along the way, but we're going to start out hitting really close to home. So the way this is going to work is we're going to spend a week or two kind of talking about um, how God defines love, how he defines hate. What are some of just those core things? What does he have to say about that? Then we're going to talk about our own personal relationship with the Lord. How do I live in such a way where I invite the Lord to come and speak truth into my life on a consistent basis and be willing to let him convict me and grow me and set me free from some sins and struggles I have in my own life so I can, I can walk in a healthy, loving relationship with him. Then we're going to move into church life. And we're going to talk about um, some very common and sad uh, sins and struggles that rip off the body of believers. You know, Jesus told his disciples, you know how the world's going to know that God's real and that he loves them? They're going to look at you and how you love each other. So we can't even talk about the culture we live in and how to love our community if we haven't first figured out how to walk in love and unity with one another. And so we're going to talk about some of the things that rip us off from walking in real love and unity as a church body. And that goes beyond just people that are sitting here that gather here together. We are a part of a larger community. We live amongst a body of believers. God's kingdom is all over Knoxville. There's different pockets and gatherings on Sunday mornings, but we're part of something bigger than us. And so how do we walk in love and unity with the greater body of Christ? And then we will move into talking about the culture that we live in and how do we, how do we engage that culture and love them well and stand for truth that will set them free and offer them life. And so that's, that's where we're headed. Um, so y'all ready? Yeah. Are you nervous? <laughs> no? Okay. All right. Well, maybe you will be later, but... Good. All right. Well, here we go. So um, what I want to do this morning is we're going to start by looking at a fairly well-known passage, something that's kind of familiar to us. Um, but I want to look at each of three characters in this passage and just see kind of some things we may um, glean from this as we begin to walk on this journey of love. So this morning is going to be a little more closely on the love side of things. Next Sunday, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the things that God would say, like we need to run from or be careful of and would be more on the hate side. Um, so here we go. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Um, we're going to be reading through and working through the story of what's commonly referred to as the story of the prodigal son. Um, I'm actually not crazy about that name for the story because it makes it like the story's about one person, one character, and it really isn't. Um, you could call it the story of the two lost sons, because whether you realize it or not, the, the older brother is just as lost, just in his own unique way as his, young, as his younger brother. Um, one of my favorite titles for it is the story of the loving father, because that's really what this story is about. It's about a father who knew how to love well. Um, so let's, let's jump into this. And we're going to break it apart a little bit. So beginning in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. You can follow on the screen. If you want to turn in your own Bible and follow along, you can do that as well. Um, we're going to read verses 11 through 20 to start here. So this is Jesus talking when it says, and he said. So Jesus is telling this story. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so the father divided his property between them. 
Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Your translation may say prodigal living. That's where we get that word from. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. All right, so there's kind of the portion of the story that deals with this younger brother. And we see a lot happening in this story. Um, now, there's a few things that we can probably relate to pretty easily in our culture, we can relate um, to, a, to a kid who wants what's coming to him. And what he's referring to there is his inheritance. He wants what's coming to him after his father dies. Um, and that's significant to know. I mean, think about what he's communicating to his dad. I'm kind of just ready for the day, old man, when you're out of the way and I get what's coming to me. That's what I'm really looking forward to. I'm looking forward to the stuff that I'm going to get. I'm ready to have that. And he says this thing to his father. And, and think about that. In the context of their culture, what we may not be able to relate to is that this dad's stuff wasn't in a bank account. It wasn't accumulating in a 401k. He didn't have some stocks. This dad's finances were wrapped up in his land, in his animals, in his property. This was no small thing for this dad to divvy up his possessions. Not only that, but if he's going to divvy up his possessions, he has two sons. And somehow, miraculously, amazingly, this father says, okay, I'll do it. And he takes everything that he had and he went ahead and divvied it up among his two sons. Now, most likely, based on the culture of the day, the older brother would have gotten two thirds. That would have been his share of the property and of the goods. And then the younger son would have gotten a third. And in order for the son a few days later to take off and go spend this, he had to liquidate the assets, right? He had to do something with the property. I mean, imagine the scandal in this town when the other dads find out, wait a minute, you let your kid get his stuff now and now he's going around town and figuring out who he can sell it to that has some cash so he can go blow it? This is, this is scandalous. This is devastating. This dad not only has his son basically rejecting him, he's now watching his son just like that, whittle away at all the stuff that he had poured his life into building and providing. You know, I'm sure that dad's desire was to leave his sons with the property one day, to give them their own um, solid stake and livelihood and place to live. That was his desire to pass that legacy onto his kids. And his youngest son just says, nope, I want what's coming to me. I'm out of here. So essentially, this younger son is wanting to take what's coming to him and is kind of wishing his father dead so he could have it. And so the story goes, he leaves, and it sounds like fairly quickly he squanders everything. 
and he finds himself with the pigs. Now, I'm not a huge, in-depth student of every single tiny little um, Jewish law, but I know this, pigs are not kosher. <laughs> Think about this. This Jewish boy that's gone off and squandered everything is now living and hanging out with the pigs. You could say that this kid has reached rock bottom. That's the condition he finds himself in. And so as I look at this, this portion of the story, this younger um, brother here, you know, I have to ask myself a little bit, okay, so where's he at? What's going on in his head? I mean, if we were to stop and just look at this kid and say, who does he love? Who does he love? What do you think is the answer to that question? Who does this younger son love? Shout it out. Himself. himself. Is, is there almost any doubt? I mean, it just seems very clear. He's, he loves himself. Now, how does that play out in his life then? What, how, does, how does that love of himself play out in his relationship with his father, for example? What ends up happening in his relationship with his dad? Don't, don't cheat and look ahead to the rest of the story where they make up. Right here where he's standing, he's in the pig pen. What, where has that love of himself led him? He's distant. He's disconnected. He's actually lived a life where he's disregarded his core community, the core relationships. Out of love for himself, he has left behind and disregarded his father and his brother and who knows how many other people. Um, moms, you know, for some reason, there's not a mom in this story. I'm guessing she's doing what moms faithfully do. She's praying. She's on her knees in the middle of the story saying, my boy needs to come home. That's, that's my guess of where she's at. She's being that faithful mom. But we don't, we don't know the full damage, but we know that he's distant and there's broken relationship. We also know this. Somewhere along the way here, as he went out and began to live this, this reckless life, you know, we read some things into the story and his older brother assumes some things, like maybe there was prostitutes involved is one of the things his brother kind of accuses him of. Maybe that was based on fact. Maybe some reports were coming back. Um, maybe his brother's just assuming the worst. I'm not really sure. But odds are to squander that money, he was, he was finding some, some people and some stuff to blow that money on. He's out partying. He's at the track. He's, maybe he is spending on prostitutes. I don't know. But he wastes it and it's gone. And what's interesting to note is whatever friends he made while he was in love with himself, what was he left with when he was out of money? They're nowhere to be found. It literally says, let me find this again. It literally says he was longing to be fed. This is in verse 16. And no one gave him anything. I wonder how much of that money he had spent on others trying to gain friends and trying to gain acclaim and to kind of be connected. And, and they're gone. They're nowhere to be found as he's now starving and living in the pig pen. He has based a life on love of self and he's found himself lacking. He's found himself alone and at the end of his rope. This disregard for others ultimately led to everyone disregarding him. He was alone. When we base our life on pursuit of self, somewhere or another, this is where it ends up. The problem is we just don't always see it along the way. In fact, there's moments along the way where it's looking great. You know, from the older brother's perspective, he got to live it up for a while. 
He's looking at the other bro younger brother going, man, that must have been great. Part of what God wants to show us about his love for us, it's not just that sin rips us off when it gets to the end. It's that actually the journey is pretty lonely. The journey is pretty unfulfilling. It's, it's rooted in nothingness. Emptiness. We're left to ourselves. I don't know if I can repeat it exactly the same way, but I'll try to do it. The journey that we're on as we're sinning, before we reach that rock bottom point, it's empty because we're pursuing our own gain and we're left with that sense of emptiness all along the way. Even those things that bring some satisfaction, I mean, this is like a fact. This is why there's addicts. This is why we get addicted to things. The satisfaction I get the first time, it gets diminished. And it diminishes over time. And so then I have to do more, be more extreme, or do something to achieve that same brief momentary glimpse of satisfaction, and it leaves me dry. See, the reality is, if that son hadn't left, he had full access to love, to life, to health, to everything that was needed. He had an incredible father. I mean, I, I can't imagine this father that would love his kid enough to free him and let him go and to hand him all that stuff. You know, I would maybe be the dad that would say, okay, you want to leave? Go make it on your own. I'm pretty sure I'm not giving my kid half my stuff so they can go squander it though. I'd be like, okay, you're on your own. Figure it out. This dad gave him that freedom. And so here's how he's left. Now there's another character in this story that believe it or not, finds himself just as lost, and that's the elder brother. So we're going to bypass the reunion with the dad. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And so now um, the brother has come home. There's a party going on. And now the older brother enters the scene. And in Luke chapter 15, down in verse 25, we're going to get a sense of where the elder brother's at. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." Now, notice the elder brother in this story. He's out in the field. Here's a party going on. And right off the bat, his defenses are immediately up. I mean, this just sounds like a really fun guy, right? Here's a party and he thinks, well, something's not right about that. Man, what a bummer. This guy's been totally robbed of experiencing joy. Here's a party going on and he's not even going to bother to go inside. He sends a servant and says, hey, come, come clue me in. What's going on in there? And then we see anger, we see frustration. And what's funny is there's some things that he says that are true, but there's a lot of stuff that he's saying that's not even right. Notice one of his first complaints. As he's 
justifying himself and kind of saying, hey, I've been faithful and I've been good and I've never disobeyed you and I've been here working hard and you never gave me anything. Is that true? No. Who owns everything now? Who owns it? The son. The father's broke. The father has nothing now. He gave it away. He gave it away to his sons. And so here's the older brother living under this weight, feeling like he doesn't have anything to call his own. The mentality that he has about his relationship with his father is the mentality of a servant. Isn't it interesting to note that both boys viewed it this way? See, even when the prodigal came to his senses, did he say, I'll come back and be a son and I'll be good? No, he said, I'll go back and be like a servant and work in my dad's house and earn my keep. His view was a servant-master relationship instead of recognizing he had this loving father that loved him as a son. And the older brother has this same view. He has been viewing his life and his relationship with, with his father like a legal arrangement. I work for you. I do what you expect out of me. I fulfill the requirements. I work hard. See, this, this elder son had a very particular view of his life. He viewed himself as a martyr. He viewed himself as the good son faithfully working hard. I served, I obeyed, and look what I have to show for it. I don't even get to go have a party with my friends. He was under this weight of obligation, and yet his father had not communicated any of that to him. He'd picked that up on his own. And so then his brother shows up and returns home in the father's mind, his son might have been, his younger son might have been as good as dead. He's thrilled to hear that his son's alive. He loves him. He's excited. The older brother has none of those emotions. He's just furious. And my guess is he's probably already starting to do the math and go, oh, great. Now he's coming home. I guess he's going to be mooching off of all my stuff. My inheritance is diminishing more by the minute. Notice this mentality. Now, if we were to step back and kind of ask the same question about the older son, who would we say he loved? Who do you think the elder son loved? Himself. Himself. Now, if you were to ask him, who do you think he would say that he loved? He'd say he loved his dad. He would say he loved his dad. And yet there is no affection. There's no sense of cherishing or celebrating the relationship he has. He lives in his father's house. He's with him all the time. He enjoys his father's presence and all his father has. He's been given much. And yet he, he feels stingy about his life and he feels like his dad is stingy and he feels like he has to fight for everything. The son that never left is just as lost as the younger brother. If anything, he might be more confused. Like at least the younger brother woke up and realized his condition is like, I got to go home and get some help. The elder brother loves himself and thinks he loves the father. Any person who would call themselves a Christian who has a relationship with Jesus should pay really, really close attention to the elder brother. Because we are way more susceptible as those living in the house of God to become like the elder brother than we are to wander like the prodigal. Not that we won't. 
There are plenty of folks who've watched with Jesus and find themselves, you know, we use terms like backslidden or whatever, but they, they go running and they kind of start living a lost life. But as those of the household of God, it is incredibly easy to find ourselves becoming more and more like the elder brother. And our walk with Jesus, this love relationship that we've been invited into, a father who has given all of his inheritance. In this story, it just cost the dad his stuff. In the real story, it cost him his life. He gave up his only son. And what do we have now in Jesus? An inheritance. The New Testament talks about that. Paul writes about that. We now have an inheritance because of Jesus. We have been given much. We are rich. And yet all too often in our Christian walks, we view having this just servant, martyr, trudging through mentality like some badge of honor and like I love the Father and really I'm just working and slavishly trying to earn. And I'm missing out on the fact that I get to live in the Father's house. And he's crazy about me. And you know what part of living in the Father's house is? It's celebrating for the prodigals that come home. The elder brother should have been the one throwing the party. He should have been the one going, dude, I've got a calf that I've been seeing out there that is like, it is fattened up. It's looking good. And man, while you've been gone, I, I've been like, I've been really learning how to barbecue. And I've gotten, I got to say, I can cook a mean prime rib. And I, I mean, really like, think about that. Like he should have been right in the center. Yeah, Rob, we're looking at you, buddy. I'm, this is getting me excited for something we're going to cook next Sunday. Listen, like, like his mentality should have been the mentality of understanding how free he was, how loved he was, how lavishly the father had loved him by just giving him his inheritance already. He gets to be alive and enjoy that inheritance with his dad present. How cool is that? That's the life he should be living. And so when his brother returns home, he should have been right at the head of that party. And instead, not only does he not understand how great it is that his brothers come home, he doesn't even know what he's missing. And if you look at the end of the story, his story doesn't resolve the way the younger brothers does. It's left with a question mark. When Jesus finishes the story, there's never an answer given about whether or not the elder brother decided to come in and join the party. That's the question before us. As I'm learning to walk in a love relationship with my heavenly father, as I'm, as I'm learning from my older brother, Jesus, how to enjoy the life God has for me, as God's spirit comes and lives inside of me, do I, do I live under a mentality of rigid, servant-minded, working hard, earning, martyr, just trying to do the right thing all the time because I love God and so I'm going to do the right thing and be faithful? Or am I learning to enjoy a real, vibrant, living relationship with God? That's what he has for us. Let's look at the Father for just a couple minutes here. So I want to I look specifically at how the Father interacts with the younger brother when he returns and how he interacts with the elder brother as he invites him into the party. So jumping back to Luke 15, verse 20. So we're picking up where the son had come to his senses. He's living with the pigs. He's hungry, and he decides, I'm returning back to my father. I've got my speech prepared. I'm just going to show up and be a servant and hope he'll just hire me, and I'll have a little bit of food to eat. And I'm sure even as he's walking down the road, you know, he's doing that thing where he's running it over and over in his head. 
exactly how he's going to do that speech. That's what I would do. Verse 20. And as he arose and came to his father, or and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now let's just stop right there for a minute. If you're going to see somebody that's a long way off, what does that tell us? You're looking for him. You're looking for him. This dad couldn't wait for his son to come home. I wonder what his days looked like, how much time he spent on that porch, out at the edge of his property, just watching. And I love what happens here. I mean, I can almost see the visual, right, of like the kid just kind of, he's trudging, his head is down. I mean, he's got to be just disheveled in a mess, probably stinking in need of a bath, like just trudging and just running over in his mind this speech. And I wonder at what point he realized his dad was coming towards him. You know, did he hear like the footsteps, the mad dash? Was there dust getting kicked up as his dad ran along the way? I mean, I don't know. Or did his dad get right up on top of him before he realized and just wrapped him in his arms? I mean, the son doesn't even start talking until after the dad had grabbed him and kissed him. So there's a good chance his dad just shocked him. Shows up, wraps his arm around him, kissed him, embraced him. He's just thrilled that he's home. The dad's not looking for the speech. He doesn't have like a contract written up of like, okay, if you're going to come back, here's what it's going to look like. This is how different things are going to be around here now that you're back. No, loves him, embraces him. The son is stunned and begins his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, parenthetically, ignores him completely and said to his servants, notice he doesn't even address the stuff the son is trying to say. He's like, eh, hey, servants, here's what we're going to do. Quickly bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. He is thrilled that his son has returned home. This father understands fully how lost the son was. This father has a sense of how lost it is to be wrapped up in yourself, loving yourself, living for self. He viewed this son's condition as moving from death back into life. That's what God's heart is for the lost. Those who are distant and apart from him, he's not looking for people to get their stuff together and start living better. He looks at lost humanity and says, Man, you're dead and you're desperate and you're empty and you're in need. And if you even just turn a little bit, I'm going to come rushing in. He loves enough to give us a life full of freedom to say, do with it what you will. Let me bless you with this life. But man, the good life is right here with me. And if you'll just turn for a minute, if you'll even just start to come to your senses, I'm going to come rushing in and love you. And notice all the stuff he gives the son. These are all things that symbolize the son's place. A robe, a ring. These are things kind of acknowledging his acceptance and love as a son. This is the love that the father has, and he celebrates. Towards the elder brother, we see the same kind of attitude. Verse 28, as this older brother is angry and is refusing to go in, his father comes out and entreats him. Think about that. The dad's like, 
The dad's not just sitting inside going, oh, well, I hope he comes into the party. The dad was willing to leave the party and go out and find the elder brother and try to get him to come back in. It's kind of similar to the parable Jesus told a few verses before this about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one. The elder brother is the one missing the party. And he goes out to him and invites him in. He invites him in, come into the party. And then he pleads with him, he begs him. And notice some of the things that he shares with him. Verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to be glad and to celebrate for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. You know, the way that Jesus defines love through this father, it's a father who gives, who forgives. We see compassion. It's a father who's patient. He watches and waits. It's a love that runs and embraces. It's a love that throws a party upon a return. It's, it's a love that pleads for reconciliation. God's heart is that broken relationships would be reconciled. He was longing for that elder brother to be reconciled to his son. Not only was he pleading for, for him to be reconciled, he was also pleading for him to recognize all that he had. He was trying to convince this older son to understand all that was available to him. See, the, the father's love was first on display at the very beginning when it says he divided his property amongst them. Right from the start, they had already been given much. The father had nothing else left but his love. And he continued to give that. He continued to give that. Dallas Willard, a guy I've learned a lot from, loved to read his stuff. As we're kind of on this journey of learning to let, let God teach us and define for us what love is, uh, Dallas Willard really simply puts love this way. Love is not a desire. It is to will the good of others. That's what love is. See, the way love is expressed by either of these sons, it, it has other things attached to it. They get a benefit from it. The way you know the son's love was broken is that he expressed some things that sounded like love. I've served you. I've obeyed you. And then he has the but attached to it. But what am I getting for that? What am I receiving for that? See, it was motivated to benefit him. The younger son's was really obvious that he was motivated by himself. Love is not desire. We've got to get that in our head and in our hearts. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm guilty of this. I use the word love to describe a really good cheeseburger. I watch chick flicks with my wife every now and then. She patiently watches Born Identity with me or something. But like, I, I'll watch check, you know, Hitch or something with my wife. And like, I, you know, we watch those movies. But man, they so misrepresent the actual essence of what love is. Our culture has just totally broken the word love. We use it for everything. I mean, think how confusing it would be for somebody to show up and go, the same word that you're using for that cheeseburger is the same word that you use to tell your spouse you care about them. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. We've, we've misused and abused it and put it in all kinds of places it doesn't belong. And then we've let our culture teach us that love is really about feelings and desire. Now, love can express itself through feelings and desire, if we look at the father in this story, he expresses some real emotion. He's embracing, he's kissing, he has compassion. So he, he expresses emotion. 
But love is more than that. It is willing the good of someone else. It means with what, with what I have in me, with my ability to do something, I am going to communicate good towards this person. If there's something I can say, if there's something I can do, I'm going to do it. The father willed their good by giving them all that he had. There was a specific action. The father willed their good by choosing to forgive and embrace. The father was willing to say hard things to his elder son because it would be good for him to understand the love that the father had. It would be good for him to learn how to party and celebrate when a lost one came home. He worked toward the good of his sons. The father's love is on display. Um, I'm grateful for Tim Keller. He wrote this great book called The Prodigal God that digs into this story a lot. It's well worth reading if you have time to do it. But the way he um, kind of unpacked this story, that word prodigal, it means reckless. Um, it means extravagant. And he, his whole point is the real prodigal in this story is the father. The father loves recklessly. The father loves with abandon. The father gives of himself. He gives it all away. And what's interesting to note, if we read this story just based on outcomes and said, what did the father get out of this? How good does that look from our outside perspective? He lost all of his stuff. At least one of his sons still isn't even really talking to him. And yet he's loving well. He's caring about the good of his sons. If, if we will let the Father teach us about love, there's some incredible things that we're going to experience. We're going to experience a relationship with God that will blow our minds. It also, as we learn about his love, we have the opportunity to see incredible reconciliation in some of our relationships. But if we're really loving like him, we're not controlling other people. And we might be left at times kind of holding a bag that looks empty. Like, I've loved well, but it hasn't been reciprocated back. But see, as we learn to love like the Father, and we experience even some of that sacrificial love that's going to happen, we're going to understand Him more and more. And He's going to change us in the process more and more. And He's going to teach us what love really looks like. I want to wrap up with this. A, pass, a verse from 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Ultimately, the way that we're going to learn about love is by being in a relationship with the one who is love. My, my hope as we go forward in this series, we're going to unpack in a more detailed way how the Bible defines love. We're going to unpack in a detailed way what this looks like. And I just have to tell you, um, it's got to go beyond information for us. We can walk away from this in a few weeks and have our notebooks full and be able to define really clearly what love looks like. That's not what this is about. We're, we are being invited into a relationship with the one who is love. And we can let him teach us what love is like as we get to know him. The more that we know him, the more that we walk with him, he'll teach us. We'll reap some incredible benefits and, and we will experience some of the difficulty I'd be lying to you if I, if I said to you, love is always going to produce incredible results in every relationship we have. It's not the truth. Love sacrifices. Jesus loved us so much, he gave his life. 
Now he did it for the joy that was set before him. He believed in the ultimate outcome. And so there are moments where we are going to love sacrificially and we're going to be holding on to the hope that God is the ultimate redeemer and it'll work out in the long run. But in the short term, it may cost. It may cost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible love that you have lavished upon us. God, my prayer this morning, um, Lord, if, if there's any element of one of these brothers in our own hearts today, God, if we've kind of had that wandering, prodigal, reckless heart where we've drifted from you, God, I pray we would wake up and come to our senses. God, if we've been basing our life on our own desires, our own gain, our own pursuit of what we want, God, that we would wake up and realize the emptiness of that. And we would find you, a loving father who is racing towards us to welcome us home to you. God, if we have found ourselves in a place like the elder brother, God, if our, if our relationship with you has become more servant master and less father son or father daughter, God, I pray that you would reveal that to us. Lord, that we could hear your heart just as this elder brother heard his father's heart pleading with him. God, I pray that we could hear you pleading with us to come home, to see how much you love us, to see what's available to us. God, that we would let you invite us back into the party. Lord, help us to wake up to the places where we've been lost so we could walk in your love. Lord, help us to grow in our relationship with you, to learn love from you, to let you define what it looks like. And God, as we receive love from you, help us to learn how to give it away, to will the good of others. God, we cannot do this apart from you. We don't want to do this apart from you. God, we want to experience the life you've called us to, and we want to share it with others. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.